0: This message is entitled, The Inspiration of Scripture, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. So far in the process of the chain of communication, of getting the mind of God into the actions of men, we have discussed the first link, namely the Doctrine of Revelation. Both as the general revelation, which is preparatory, and to special revelation, which presents the message of the gospel. Revelation and inspiration being two sides of the same link. Revelation, the giving of the truth, and inspiration, the recording of the truth for transference to others. Today we want to talk in the first hour concerning that other side of the first link, the doctrine of inspiration. And I believe it would be well for us to begin the same way we have the other ones with a definition so that we will know the area that we're talking about. Number one, the definition of inspiration. Having defined it, we will seek to take individual parts of it. Here is the definition. Verbal, plenary, inspiration means that God so directed the human authors of Scripture that without destroying their individuality, personal interest, or literary style, his complete thought toward man, was recorded without error in the words of the original manuscript now i'd like to take that definition and take certain words in it namely three verbal and plenary and inspiration and define them in fuller measure what do we mean when we say the bible is verbally inspired? verbal simply indicates that inspiration involves and includes the actual language forms. that is divine influence extends to the language used. When you say verbal, it becomes obvious that the words were influenced by God but not only the words, the pieces of the words. The voice, the number, the gender. And that kind of a doctrine of inspiration is propounded by Christ himself in such a verse as Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, in which the Lord says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy... But to fulfill, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of the least of these commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. on and so forth. Now, in the Hebrew language, you have, for example, an R and a D. And if a scribe was writing rather rapidly, you can see how, if he's not careful, a D can begin to look very much like an R. The difference between an R and a D was this thing out here called a And the Lord is saying that he is not only interested in the thoughts and in the words and in the letters but in the distinction between letters. A jot or a yod was a thing that looks like a comma to us and oftentimes that was conjoined with another consonant to form a letter in speaking. So the Lord is taking the smallest bits, the smallest forms, linguistically, and saying, Not one of those shall pass away from the law till all be fulfilled. Every last one of them is important. There are other occasions in the word, in Galatians chapter 3, for example, where the entire argument of a passage rests on a singular versus a plural. In Galatians 3, he says, Not of seeds as of many, but of seed as of one, referring to the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. There he builds his whole argument on the difference between a singular and a plural. In many places, the argument of a passage is built on one word, So that words were important parts of words were important grammar syntax was important a doctrine of inspiration then includes a statement of the fact that god was active in the language forms that were used he didn't just give general thoughts without words and parts of words but rather involved in the total of it then the word plenary p-l-e-n-a-r-y Plenary indicates that inspiration extends equally to all parts of the Scripture. Plenary refers to full or complete, so it relates to all of that which is Scripture. Verbal inspiration, then, relates to all that is Scripture, and therefore it is also plenary inspiration, full or complete. The divine influence extended not merely to the particles and the parts of words that were used, but it secured that kind of control to the fullest extent of the scripture. All of the books are equally inspired, and the inspiration extends to all of the content of all of the books. So that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Plenary inspiration, then, is the full or complete. Now, someone would say, well, now, wait a minute. What is Scripture? And earlier we mentioned that this is the subject of canonicity to determine what Scripture is. But supposing you were trying to make a theological, inductive study of whats Scripture according to the Word of God. Following our presupposition that Scripture should interpret Scripture, uh, how would we go about it? Well, we would take such a passage as Second Timothy chapter 3, which states, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We'd go back to the immediately preceding context, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. There he refers to scriptures that Timothy had. Well, now, what scriptures did Timothy have? How has Paul talked to Timothy about the Scripture? In order to find that out, you need to go through the entirety of the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and to see how Paul uses the word scripture with Timothy. And back in 1 Timothy chapter 5, as a case in point, Paul is speaking not about the doctrine of inspiration, but speaking about the doctrine of remuneration of the elders of the church. And he says in verse 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture said. and now he quotes two portions of the scripture, one from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and one from the New 1 Corinthians, and treats them both equally as Scripture, and says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain, that's Deuteronomy, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So that Paul quotes from two different portions of the Word of God with equal authority to substantiate his point here, and he calls them both Scripture. So that would be a beginning for your development of what is Scripture. And then you might go to a verse such as Second Peter chapter three and verse fifteen, where Peter speaks about Paul's writing. And Peter says, "An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles." Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So that here Peter is saying that the wisdom that has been given to Paul, which has come forth in all his epistles, is the scripture. So Peter identifies Paul's writings as scripture. Paul identifies the Old and the New Testament. Peter identifies Paul. Jesus, in Matthew 5, identifies the Law, Prophets, and Writings as the Scripture, so that as you put all of those things together, you have that what the Scripture says is Scripture, the Word of God. The full extent of that would be plenary inspiration. Now thirdly, the word inspiration. The word inspiration in our definition is a bit more confusing because when you use the word inspiration you usually think of something that happens to the individual. Shakespeare, he was an inspired writer. We say of Bach, he was an inspired composer. Somebody else was an inspired artist. And we usually think of the word inspiration as meaning an elevation of the innate qualities in a person, a heightening of their innate qualities. So we talk about inspiration as something that happens to the individual. And that is not what the word in 2 Timothy means, which is translated inspiration. As a matter of fact, the word there is a word that occurs only once in history, and that's 2 Timothy 3.16. It is what is called a hapax legamina. Hapax means once, legamina means writing, So it's a once only writing in history, a hapax legamina. And the word is theopneustas, and that's made of two words, "theos," which equals God, and pneuma, which equals breath, or spirit. You're familiar with pneumatic tires. Well, there you've got your word, pneuma, pneumatic, breath. So the word very literally means, God breathed. Now actually, very literally, the word expiration would be more true to the meaning than inspiration, except that we use expiration to mean someone died, and that's not what this means. So I suppose that the most literal rendering we could give would be God spirated, He is saying, therefore, in the word inspiration, that it is God-spirated. He's talking, then, about the origin of the word. Please understand that when we use the term inspiration, then, we are not talking about the methodology by which the writer and God brought together the words which would be finally put down. We're not talking about methodology When he says all scripture is God-breathed, he is talking about origin or source, and that in itself says something about the character of the scripture that we'll talk about in just a moment. Inspiration then means God-breathed, and this could not be a word that Paul pulled out of his vocabulary, for it was not in his vocabulary, it was in nobody's vocabulary. Therefore, the word thought, new start, had to be one of those words which are limited in the word of God, which God specifically coined for Paul to use. Here was a conjunction of two words in Paul's vocabulary that God brought together for Paul to express the doctrine of inspiration of the word of God. So, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed, God-spirated, had its origin in God. Now, that leads us, then, to the second area of the outline, namely, the nature of inspiration. I mean, talk about the definition. Now, the nature of inspiration. First, under the nature, it originates in God. That, therefore, has to say something about its character. That which is breathed out of God must partake of the character of the one breathing it out. If a man is a liar by nature, that which he speaks may be expected to partake of that which he is. And that's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, when they were challenging the doctrine of his deity, and saying, we be of our father Abraham, and they were saying he was a child of fornication, Jesus turned around and said to them, you are of your father the devil. Why? Because you're a liar, and he's the father of lies. Jesus had a quick way of getting to the point. The devil... Speaks according to that which he is. He is a liar, and therefore he specializes in lying. God Almighty is pure, perfect, righteous, altogether, therefore he cannot lie. There are a number of things that God cannot do, but that's one thing that it is spoken of that he cannot do. He cannot lie. And it would really be important. This is kind of a side thought here now, for us to think that through with regard to our own lives. It's amazing how many people who feel themselves spiritual also feel free to lie. Call it a white lie or whatever. But God can't lie. Back in the Civil War, a story is told by Trumbull of an occasion where the South, had worked up a plan whereby they were going to spring loose a number of their prisoners that were held by the north and the plan had been thoroughly worked out and it was ready to be put into action when all of a sudden one of the prisoners of the south realized that in order for him to get loose he was going to have to tell a lie and so he refused to go ahead with the plan and the word got back to the southern soldiers, and they got in contact with him, and they said they could not understand that. How in the world could he throw this whole thing into a tailspin by refusing to tell a lie? They said, after all, you were going to kill a guard to get out, if necessary. You mean to tell me that you could kill a guard, but you couldn't lie? And he said, that's right. He said, on what basis can you justify that? He said, I'm a child of God, and I can't do what God couldn't do. God could kill people and does, but God can't lie. Good to think it's true. How many people today get all upset about killing people in Vietnam or capital punishment or something else that have no calm of conscience at all about lying every other word they speak? But God can't lie. You see, when it gets right down to the heart of the matter, that's what's a whole lot more important. Now, when it comes to the inspiration of the Scripture, that's important. For that which God breathes out must partake of the character of God. That's the nature of inspiration. Now, there's a second area in the nature of inspiration. Not only does it partake of the character of god but in addition it is a duality of authorship now we mentioned this under revelation that special revelation was a duality that god and man were both involved so that god the holy spirit took the truths of god's mind and wove them into word forms which the apostle was speaking so that god and man were involved now When we come to the doctrine of inspiration, the same thing is involved here. That both God and man are involved in the recording of the revelation that God has given. And each of them is 100% involved. So that there is 100% of humanity and there is 100% of deity involved. The Bible, therefore, is a God-man book. Now, some people have a bit of a problem with the fallible human element in that duality. And they would say that because man is involved, the product must be tainted by the fallibility of the man that is involved. Even though God is involved, Because man is involved, it must be therefore human and therefore fallible. Now it's an interesting thing that these same people don't usually bother to stop and think very long about the parallel to that. If God is involved, it must also partake of that which is the character of God. It doesn't seem to be too much of a problem for them to attribute error to the Word of God on the basis of man's involvement without ever stopping to think that that error they attribute to the word of God also says something about God. However, I think there is a parallel to what happened in the birth or the conception of Jesus Christ that may help us to understand the divine human involvement. Scriptural inspiration as an act finds a parallel in the miraculous conception As an act. By the way, it's the conception that is miraculous, not the virgin birth. Christ was born like anybody else is born, but he was not conceived like anybody else is conceived. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So there was a miraculous intervention in his conception. A human father was not involved, even though there was a human agent, Mary, involved in the conception. So that in both cases there was a miraculous act. The process involved a human agent and a divine agent in both cases. Mary was the human agent in the conception. The Holy Spirit was the divine agent in the miraculous conception of the scripture, the written word. For example, Paul was the human agent, and the Holy Spirit was the divine agent. Now notice that the product or the result of the divine human act of miraculous conception was the living word of God, Jesus Christ, who was sinless. We've used the term impeccable, that is, not able to sin. The product of the process of inspiration was the infallible written word of God. It was inerrant, without error, and consequently infallible, not capable of leading to error, So that the written word was an infallible word, the living word was an impeccable word. Or if you want to use another term, if you join the Greek word for God and the Greek word for man together, you have the word theanthropic, theos and anthropos, so that the living word was the theanthropic word living, and the written word was the theanthropic word written. It was the God-man word in both cases. Now, this illustration wouldn't help you a great deal if you did not accept the deity of Jesus Christ and his sinlessness, if you did not accept the scripture's testimony. But the scripture says Jesus Christ did no sin. It says he knew no sin. It says in him was no sin. And it says he was apart from sin. Now, those four statements ought to be enough to convince you of his sinlessness. Now, if he was sinless, which Scripture says he was, and which he must be if he is God, then apparently God worked in such a way that though he utilized all of the human qualities of Mary, he did not encumber it with the sin of Mary. Mary was a sinner before and after. Mary had other children which were not sinless. Paul wrote other books and said other things which were not the word of God. But as Paul was being moved by the Spirit of God, 2 Peter 1.21, that which was being written while he was being borne along by the Spirit of God was miraculously preserved from the fallibility of man without destroying the human qualities in it. And I repeat what I said yesterday. Sin is not essential to man. Righteousness is essential to God. So that that which God produces must partake of what he is essentially. Whereas man could be miraculously preserved from fallibility because that is not essential to what he is. Sin is something that happens to man after creation. Therefore, when you bring God and man together in a production, you have that which is human and that which is divine. And because God's character is involved, it therefore must be preserved from human fallibility. Any question there? Yes. Good. Would I explain any difference between this view and the view of God dictating a word? Remember earlier that when I mentioned that we are holding to the verbal plenary inspiration of the word of God, that we were not talking about a methodology, but we were talking about a product, the end result. Now. In the methodology, many different procedures would be used. In some places in the word of God, there is direct divine dictation. In fact, God wrote it down. Remember the Ten Commandments? There you have, obviously, dictation. But that's not the normal procedure. On the other side of the spectrum, for example, in Luke, chapter 1, Luke gives us some idea of how he brought together His book, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. And there Luke is obviously saying that I have collected many things from many people who were eyewitnesses, as we are, of these things, and so I am putting them together. Luke, then, in his writing, used documents. What we are saying is that when Luke used those things, God was so involved in Luke's procedure that Luke did not incorporate anything in his writing that was historically inaccurate or grammatically inaccurate on and so forth. There may be various ways of expressing something grammatically, but as far as an actual error, it was not involved. The product, then, was the verbally, plenarily inspired word of God. The method, sometimes direct revelation, sometimes historical fragments that were gathered, sometimes divine dictation, all kinds of methods, but with this kind of a product. Now finally, the result, or the product of that. There are two words that we want to discuss as to the product of inspiration. And these words are inerrant and infallible. What kind of a product came out of this dual authorship? Now obviously we've already entered into this a bit, but just to put it in your outline, number one, the product was inerrant, that is, it had no error. They possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability of mistake and are incapable of error. The word infallible follows up on inerrant. Because they are inerrant, they are therefore infallible. That is, not capable of leading you into error rightly understood. They are incapable of teaching deception, so that Scripture, therefore, could possess an indefectible authority. This is why it has final authority. It can never fail in its judgments and statements. Thus we can say it is wholly trustworthy and reliable. This is what we mean by infallible. And this is the result of the nature of inspiration. Because of the way Scripture came in its origin as the breath of God in its dual authorship of God and man without distortion of sin, therefore it as a product must be inerrant and infallible. Now, 40 or 50 years ago, we would not have had to have used all of these terms. It would have been enough to say the scripture is inspired, the Bible is inspired, and that would have divided the camps because the liberal would say no and the conservative would say yes. But it seems like the argumentation has become much more subtle as time goes along and perhaps as the devil gets more anxious, recognizing that his time is limited. For today we have found it necessary to say that we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Scripture, that is, that God gets down to the very words, and we believe in the plenary inspiration of the Scripture to the very fullest extent. Now, those two words are really redundant to inspiration. If inspiration means God breathed, then obviously it is verbal and plenary. But we still use the terms that help to cause people to understand what we do and don't mean by Inspiration. Now, more recently, it has not been enough to say we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture, but we have to add to that we believe in its consequent inerrancy and infallibility. Because we find people that accepted the other but did not get the real point of it. Now, today, it's not only enough to say you believe in the inerrancy and infallibility, but now evangelicalism is divided between whether it is revelational inerrancy or absolute inerrancy, whether it is inerrancy of intent or inerrancy of fact. Now you say, back there about six statements ago, you lost me. Now let me try to give you a very practical illustration of it. It's hard to talk about this thing without talking about those who are very close to it, but there's one seminary recently, for example, that... Specifically, changed its doctrinal statement at this point. They used to say that they believed in the plenary inspiration of the Scriptures and that the Scriptures were without error in the whole and in the part. But their faculty didn't like that statement. And the majority of their faculty believed that there could be errors in an inspired Scripture. And one of their faculty members said that when the writers were writing, even though they had the intent of inerrancy, unbeknown to them, they could have gathered in the process of their historical investigation facts that were not true and incorporated them into the Scripture so that it was erroneous, even though their intent was to be inerrant. So that they say the Scripture is in its writing, in the mind of the writer, inerrant of purpose, but not inerrant of fact. We may therefore expect to find errors in the text. One of their profs recently went to great extent at the Evangelical Theological Society to use the mustard seed as a case in point. And to see, the Bible says it is the least of all the seeds, and we know today that it is not, that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. I don't know what's the matter with this man. If he just studied his Greek a little bit more, he'd find out that very specifically, the Scripture didn't say the least, but it said the lesser of all the seeds. Very careful attention to accuracy. Now, you say, well, Boy, what difference does all that make? Why should I give myself to being concerned about that? Well, let me give you a suggestion here. Maybe you can see this more clearly. In the early days, telegraphers did not spell out punctuation. And a well-to-do lady on a vacation in Europe wired her husband asking permission to buy a very costly item. The husband wired back, no, no. Expense too great. Without punctuation, the message read, No expense too great. The lady bought the item to the dismay of both husband and telegraph company. And from then on, telegraphers spelled out punctuation on all telegraph messages. S-T-O-P, stop. You see, a little period is a very insignificant thing, unless it happens to be at that particular point. There are no small items in God's Word. You never know when the entire argument may rest on a singular or a plural, on a gender or case or number. And therefore, if thought is going to be accurately communicated, it must be communicated by word. So that, in conclusion, these two things are very important in the product. Number one, to the extent that you depart from inerrancy of fact as a total principle to that extent, you have depreciated the authority of the Word of God. And once you admit one error in the Word of God, there is no logical stopping point until you have emaciated the entire Word of God and you have nothing but the covers left. Listen to this line of logic that was developed by one particular writer. To the extent that you weaken inerrancy, to that extent you weaken inspiration. To the extent that you weaken inspiration, to that extent you have a garbled revelation. To the extent that you have a garbled revelation, you have a weakened authority. And when you weaken the authority of the Bible, you launch upon a shifting sea of subjective uncertainty. One error in the scripture opens the door. It is the camel's nose in the tent that opens for all the rest because everybody is going to have their idea of another error in the word of God. But not only does it do that, it impinges upon the very character of God so that secondly, the moment you admit that God was involved even down to the choice of the words used, then any mistake must be chargeable to God himself. And that, of course, is unthinkable. And that is the doctrine of inspiration in brief. A lot could be said by way of examples of supposed errors in the word of God. And I would simply say to you that there's not a question you're going to raise that hasn't been raised a thousand times before you ever thought of it and probably answered a good many times. Arndt and Gingrich, compilers of the most prevalent lexicon, Greek lexicon that is used today, have books on this. Arndt has a book entitled Bible Difficulties, and he has another book entitled Contradictions in the Bible, which are great to study if you have a problem in this area. An older book by Haley, H-A-L-E-Y, entitled Alleged Discrepancies in the Bible, answers most of the questions except some of the more modern ones that have been brought up today. There has not been an argument brought up for an apparent discrepancy that does not have an answer. If you find one, you would do well to rest your judgment in the trustworthiness of the scriptures, which have proven themselves time and again to be accurate. Many are the hammers that have beat upon the anvil, but the hammerheads are all on the ground and the anvil still stands. And many are the arguments that have beat upon the word of God. Many are the critics that have sought to destroy it, but the word still stands and the arguments have fallen to the ground.